0: of Buford on the web at wagp.net this
1: is the Bible line a live radio call-in program with dr. Carl Broglie dr. Broglie is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina and for the next hour he's available to answer your questions providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living our phone lines are open And if you have a
0: question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. You may be a first time listener here at WAGP.net as we live stream throughout the world. We also are available, of course, locally through our 100,000-watt station that God's entrusted to us at 88.7 FM. And so for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. It might be a particular theological issue or some challenge you're facing in your personal life or ministry or church. And if we can be of help by God's grace, we will direct you back to Holy Scripture to give you our responses from there. Again, locally, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859, 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl, for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. When you call, you can go on the air live. We give, uh, certainly, preference to live callers. Sometimes people want to get a question answered, and they, I say, well, just call them live, or at least dictate. You can remain anonymous and dictate as well, so we're happy to receive it in either fashion. But we do give priority to those. And and when you submit a question through Search the Scriptures, as a drop-down menu, Ask Dr. Brogy a Question. Eventually, by God's grace, if we answer it before the rapture, you will get uh, the answer to it through uh, a correspondence through the email address you left. All right, with that said, let's go ahead and get started, Walt.
1: All right, good morning, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes in as anonymous out of Beaufort, South Carolina. They write, My older children have a landscaping business, and recently while working on a customer's home, the ladies, the customers my kids were doing work for, neighbor approached them asking my kids if they had heard about their customer that she had just gotten married to someone of the same sex and proceeded to tell my kids how sweet it was while praising the couple for their union. My children were taken back by this conversation. My first thought was to tell this customer that they can no longer work on her house as it goes against their moral beliefs. Since we now know about her lifestyle, should my kids continue to do business with this individual, just like the cake decorators, shouldn't they deny them their services? Maybe there may be repercussions uh, because of this, such as on social media, in their neighborhood, etc., or should they recognize that they will be persecuted and just deny her their services? I know we are to be in the world but not of the world, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. What would be your advice concerning this issue and also... Should my children explain to her why they can no longer serve her with their business?
0: Okay, it's a great question. I think you're mixing apples and oranges here. Uh, Let's say I was a a heart surgeon and a homosexual, lesbian, gay, transgender person came into the hospital. They are having a heart attack and I said, well, I can't serve you because your moral lifestyle contradicts you know, what I believe, and so go ahead and have your heart attack and die. Now, that would be cruel. It would be unchristian. Uh, It would be a poor testimony for Christ. Understand what these cake people, when lesbian, homosexual men came in and they wanted cupcakes or all kinds of things, they provided whatever they wanted. What they could not do was to produce a wedding cake because it had directly entered into a moral belief that was contrary to Scripture, because they were basically asking them to call their union a marriage when God recognized it not as a marriage. Now, the Supreme Court of the United States can call it a marriage, but it's not a marriage. It's, it's um, two people living together in sexual immorality. So when it comes to your children cutting someone's grass, that's not the kind of issue you're facing. But I do think because you're the mom or the dad here, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I'm assuming this is the mother writing, it looks like. And yes, or
1: the mother passed Yeah,
0: so, um, you know, you need to be careful uh, in terms of what you're teaching your children and what you're allowing them to be exposed to. If you felt like these uh, two women married to each other, were aggressive in terms of trying to pollute their minds and tell them how great it is and that kind of thing, then you might want to step back and knowing, you know, the Bible says, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Now contextually that is primarily in the realm of bad theology, but most lifestyle issues are representative of bad theology. And so, it's terrible theology to say that they're married because they're not. They're just living in sexual immorality. But assuming all things being equal and that's not happening, there would certainly be nothing wrong with your children uh, cutting their grass. I think what's important is that these are opportunities that come through life. As you walk in the way, as you lie down, as you rise up, like Moses says in the, in the Shema Uh, I hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. You're loving with all your heart. Well, how do you do that? Well, it starts with the parents and grandparents first having the word in their heart so that when issues come up, like the one you're facing, you can address it accordingly. Um, But it's important that we reach these people for Christ. They are lost. Remember when Paul says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes through that list, neither fornicators nor adulterers nor adulterers nor feminine, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor revilers, or drunkards, or swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. So we're not deceived, like Andy Stanley is. We're not deceived in telling people it's okay. You can't get over this, and it's fine to be a gay Christian. Look, we we don't uh, identify in other realms. I don't say, well, I'm a thieving Christian, and this is just the way God has made me. And you know, I I pray, Lord help me not to be a thief, but I just can't seem to get past it. And so I'm a thieving Christian or in the more realm, I'm a pedophile. And so, you know, I've asked the Lord to help me with this, but I'm a pedophile Christian. You know, you, you don't call yourself a gay Christian and for them to affirm that through their recent conference is really an abomination to the Lord. And so these are people who need to be forgiven And it might be that some of your older children are mature enough spiritually where they would be the persons to confront it, where if uh, this couple begins to evangelize them, they can stand for their faith, and they might, in the course of it, lose their job. They might say, well, you know, I don't think we'll have you cut our grass anymore. And then you teach them what God says about persecution. In fact, parents should be doing that actively anyway, especially in the day that we live. Blessed are you when men say all sorts of evil against you falsely on account of me. Great is your reward in heaven. Uh, Jesus said, beware if all men speak well of you, for so they spoke of the false prophets who went before you. But what you want your children to see is that by God's grace, this could be them. And understand, too, sometimes there is some backdrop behind this. Sometimes, you know, when you, when you meet these um, children, 14, 15, 16 years of age, and they say, well, I think I'm gay, or a boy says, I think I'm a girl, or a girl says, I think I'm a boy, there's an indoctrination process that has typically preceded it. And the sad thing is, is this is beginning now across America in kindergarten. And I've said it before, but, you know, little children will believe that there's a big fat man in a red suit and a long, white beard who can get down every chimney across the world in one night. And they believe that because they're five years of age. Um, Nonetheless, you know, they'll believe, well, maybe I'm not a girl. Maybe I'm not a boy. And we're providing some books right now at Community Bible Church for our parents to be proactive Uh, that will help them address these issues in an honorable way without polluting their precious little minds. But there's an indoctrination process. Sometimes there has been an abuse problem. So I've dealt with adult men and they've said, well, when I was eight years old, you know, this music teacher abused me sexually and I got very confused and he threatened to murder my parents if uh, I told them, I'm telling you a true story right now. And he thre- they threatened to kill my parents. And, you know, what What am I to do? And um, now I'm confused. And, and so, again, nonetheless, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But you want your children to see that individual for whom grass they cut, not as a homosexual or gay or lesbian, but as a person for whom Christ died, uh, I'm thinking right now of Second Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul uh, speaks, among other things, about his evangelistic zeal, why he wants to win people uh, to Jesus, and he says, therefore, from now on, this is Second uh, Corinthians five sixteen, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, and the old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And so Paul says, we don't look at people according to the flesh. And the word flesh, sarks, is used in different ways in Scripture, sometimes to refer to the skin that covers your skeleton, most often to the sin nature within, but sometimes, as in this context, from a worldly point of view. And Paul says, there was a time when I looked at Christ in that way. He didn't see Jesus as Lord. He saw him as a man. He saw him as a blasphemer, and those that represented him as committing blasphemy, so much so that he was involved, of course, in the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen. But Paul's basically saying, I don't see that man as a drunk. I see that drunk as a man for whom Christ died. I don't see that person as a lesbian. I see that person as a lesbian for whom Christ died. So much so that if they enter into Christ, they can become a new person and their old life can pass away. And so first and foremost, don't see them simply for their sins. See them as a person. You need to be patient and you need to be forgiving and recognize that these people are lost and they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so that's what lost sheep do. They wander into bad places, and that's where these people are at. It doesn't mean we don't confront their sin. They need a compass. They need to have their consciences recalibrated. And the power to do that is to use Holy Scripture. But don't just focus on their sexuality. You want to focus first on the fact that they are sinners, as we all are, that we need the grace of God to forgive us, and that God can make us a new creature, and that their willingness to admit that whether they're lesbian or whatever is wrong and and sinful, um, that the focus is to receive Christ for forgiveness because he can't begin to redirect their sexual orientation until they become a new person. And so, you know, when I hear... Andy Stanley's uh, sermon yesterday, and, you know, it was very, very sad, this conference he had last week, and, you know, he told all these little anecdotes of, you know, gay men in the church who said, you know, I prayed that God would take this away from me, and he just didn't, and I'm lonely, and so, you know, I have this companion, and, you know, and, And he underestimates the power of God to change a person. And if a person doesn't call sin, sin, they don't yet really need a Savior. And so the word repent is often abused where people front load the gospel and they say, clean up your act so you can come to Christ. No, you can't. The person who sins is a slave to sin. But you come to Christ so that he can make you a new creature and he can change you from the inside out. And so technically, you do not have to use the word repent. And most people, sadly, who use the word repent, and I use it, Jesus said, unless you repent, you perish. But I've heard it used so many times in an abusive way where it front loads the gospel and turns it into a work righteousness. When Peter was asked, brethren, what must we do? In one word, he says, repent, metanao, change your mind. You called Jesus just a man. He is Lord. That was the context of their repentance. When Paul was asked, what must I do to be saved? In one word, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And in the only gospel in the New Testament that is exclusively written with an evangelistic purpose, the word repent never appears. But when there's true faith in the Lord Jesus, there's repentance. When you turn to Christ, you turn from your sin. And so the key is not to tell them, well, you need to change your sexual orientation to become a Christian. It's impossible. But if they become a Christian, God can heal them. And, yes, the sanctifying power of the Spirit is great, where he can begin to recalibrate the mind and the spirit and the passions and the desires. And so that's what I would say. That's where I would encourage you to direct your children. Good question. Let's go to the next.
1: All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning on the Bible line, Our next question is a live dictation. Pastor Carl comes from Kelvin, and he would like to know what is your opinion on pledging allegiance to the flag?
0: I have no problem with it. I'm glad to put my hand over my heart, and I recognize that I have dual citizenship. I'm a citizen of the United States of America, and I am also a citizen of heaven. I would never promise allegiance to a nation to do something that was contrary to my allegiance to the living God. And so all submission to authorities who are over us is always qualified in Scripture by um, our ultimate allegiance to the living God. So there's nothing in the Pledge of Allegiance that contradicts what Scripture says. Eisenhower added the words under God and, and became part of the Pledge. And I think that was a good thing. You know, blesses is a nation whose God is the Lord. Uh, the Scripture affirms a nation that gives God some kind of allegiance. We're just giving him lip service when our president and vice president and so many in Congress just say, God bless America, while they're advocating wicked things. But listen, um, we should be proud and grateful to God that he allowed us to be born in this country. There's a reason why our southern border is crowded this morning where 151 nations have come over the southern border illegally. They're not fighting to get into China. They're not fighting to get into Russia. They want to come to America. Why? Because God put his blessing on America. Not because we had more gold in our hills and more oil underneath the ground. It's because we honored the Lord, and we became the nation of the world that became those who sent missionaries across the planet to um, help people find Jesus as Lord. That's all stopping, and God will slowly lift his hand off of our nation, and you can't just open borders up. And let me just run down this road for a second. God established borders, Uh, God told the Jewish people, look, have compassion on the alien and the orphan and the widow and these foreigners who will come into your land. Have compassion. Remember, there was a time when you were a foreigner, in essence, I'm paraphrasing, out in Egypt for 400 years. And yet when these people came into Israel, they were under Israeli law. And the same theocracy that applied to the Jewish people applied to the other nations that came into their land. And if you don't have uh, standards, you don't have a nation. If you don't have borders, you don't have a nation. You have utter anarchy. And that's what's happening in our country. And it's really pretty pathetic that, you know, people are telling us, our our, our borders secure? And it's like, what do you just think we are? A bunch of idiots? And they have little concern for, you know, a rise in. Fentanyl poisoning that's gone from approximately 20,000 a year to over 100,000. Just last month, during the month of September, we had more illegal aliens come into the United States than any other single month in the history of this country. And then I think of all these little children who are coming across the border, tens of thousands of them. They're just assigning them to families that they know nothing about in people who are claiming them, and sadly, many of them are being used for child prostitution and just wicked, wicked, wicked things. So our nation needs to mean something, and I'm grateful. You know, my dad was a Korean War veteran and World War II veteran, and I have two sons who serve in the Marine Corps, and Walter here behind the mic, he he served our nation as well. And, you know, there's a price for freedom, and we should be grateful that we have it. And so I have no problem with pledging allegiance to the flag. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right,
1: eight four three five two five one eight five nine. Again, it's eight four three five two five one eight five nine. If you have a question for us this morning, our next question comes from Dean K. He writes, "My reason for this email is on a controversial topic, the Talmud. I know there is a ton of anti-Semitic behavior in this world right now, which is unfortunate, as the Jews are God's chosen people." But I also understand where a lot of this anti-Semitism comes from, especially when you learn about what the Talmud teaches about Christians. I guess my question is, why doesn't anybody preach or speak out about what the Talmud says against Christians as it teaches some really horrible and purely evil things against us? If this is the synagogue of Satan that Jesus speaks of, then why do Christian pastors only speak good about the Jews and not the truth when it comes to what the Talmud teaches?
0: All right. well first of all, it's not the synagogue of Satan that Jesus speaks about because the Talmud had not yet even been codified when the book of Revelation is written. The word Talmud in Hebrew just is translated directly into English as Talmud. Uh, It's a Hebrew word that means learning or instruction. And so there was a tradition amongst Jewish people that Moses had been taught directly by God as to what each of the commandments meant and how they were to be applied. And people said that those who learned from Moses would listen to what he said and they would pass on this oral tradition. Well, when the Jews were scattered You know, initially at 70 A.D., and then by Hadrian the Emperor at 135 A.D., they began to realize that they were losing their ability to pass on the oral tradition. Now, they view the oral tradition on the same level as Scripture itself, and that obviously is wrong. The apostles did not believe that. Jesus did not believe that. Uh, He didn't quote the traditions Uh, that were prevalent except typically in a negative way is that you you, you follow the traditions of men, but you're ignoring the Word of God. You should be searching the Scriptures because they're all about me. And so eventually by the 5th century AD, the Talmud is codified. It's put in writing, and there's two Talmuds. There's the Babylonian Talmud, and there's the Jerusalem Talmud. Most of the time when people refer to the Talmud, they are referring to the Babylonian Talmud because that's the most extensive and considered the most authoritative. With that said, there are some helpful things in the Talmud. It's not Scripture. It's not God-breathed. But their, some of their interpretations, like I've just turned to Zechariah chapter 12 and verse uh, 10, which, by the way, John 19.37 says applies to Jesus, look on, looking on him whom they would pierce. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace um, so that when they look on me, that is the Messiah whom they pierce, they being Israel, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And so interestingly, in the oral tradition, the Jewish people saw this as messianic again with time there came a point where some rabbis would say, well, God literally can't be pierced because God is spirit. And so the view of what the Messiah could be was changing and changing rapidly. And so they said this is in reference to Israel. Well, it's Israel who are the sinners, and in the next chapter it's Israel who's mourning over the sin. But think about, remember, the 5th century – Late 400s, the Talmud is codified and put in writing. And this, again, is what most Jewish people read today. So when you do Jewish evangelism, sadly, even the youngest Christian often knows more about the Old Testament Scriptures than the average Jewish person does today. Uh, Most Jewish people, unless they're Orthodox Jews, know very little of the Scriptures. And even Orthodox Jews spend most of their time reading the Talmud which is basically an authoritative interpretation of how to understand the Old Testament than they do actually reading the Scriptures themselves. But with that said, uh, there were certainly things in the Talmud, but it's not extensively anti-Christian. But think about, again, the time frame. Uh, Constantine, you know, around 325 AD, basically says if you're Jewish and you want to become a Christian, you have to deny that you're a Jew. Look, you can't deny your Jewishness any more than the fact that I have Irish and Italian blood flowing through my vein. Jewishness is an ethnicity that began with, you know, Abraham and his offspring and his lineage. It's a people. So initially when the word Christianity, I was on a broadcast last week called Stand in the Gap. This might be helpful to this person, Dean, wherever he's calling from. Uh, you might – where, where can we find the Stand in the Gap? Is that at uh, WAGP.net or Search the Scriptures? Or it where? is
1: on Search of Scriptures. Pastor Carl, you click the drop-down tab, and it's the last one at the bottom.
0: Okay, so the last one at the bottom. And basically the program that they're interviewing me on was in reference to how to reach Jewish people for Christ. And, and it's helpful to understand that initially the church was 100% Jewish. Every convert in Acts 1 through 7 is Jewish, 100% Jewish. But as they began to move out to the remotest parts of the world, um, the Jewish people became less and less percentage-wise, where apart from the remnant that God has always had of Jewish people, it became an almost all-Gentile church. So it went from being all-Jewish to less and less-Jewish to being almost zero-Jewish to becoming anti-jewish. And so Constantine says, you have to deny your Jewishness, you can't circumcise your children in Rome anymore, and they became hateful towards the Jews. Well, short time later, you know, Augustine comes on the scene in that kind of environment, he's largely influenced by Origen. And Origen because, you know, it would not be popular to say, well, there's coming a time when the Messiah is going to return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he'll put every nation under his feet. Well, that would not go over well if you're under a king. So he began to spiritualize his scriptures and say, well, there's no future for the Jewish people. Obviously, their temple is gone. God's against the Jewish people. He's cursed the Jewish people. And the church is the new Israel, and Augustine is influenced by him. And again, when you go into Yad Vashem, it would be parallel our Holocaust Museum, uh, the very first alcove that you go into Where they begin to detail the um, seeds of the Holocaust. Who do they feature? Augustine. Some of the hateful, heinous things that he said. And then you have Pope after Pope after Pope, just a line of long anti Semites. And so remember, it's in this atmosphere. Augustine sets the seeds for Catholicism. And by 590, you know, the first. A pope steps up to the plate, the bishop of Rome becomes the predominant bishop, and so they call him the pope. And so whether the Talmud is even representative of some of the early traditions that were maybe being recited in Jesus' day, and what it gravitated to, because you had become the most hated people on earth, and who led in that hatred? Christians, so to speak. But they weren't real Christians. And I have to remind Jewish people that everything that's been done in the name of Christianity hasn't been done by real Christians. And so, even eventually, by the time the Protestant reformers come on the scene, you know, Calvin says there are rotten and unbending people that deserve to be oppressed without measure. You know, you've got Martin Luther, and he says their synagogues should be set on fire, their homes should be destroyed, their rabbis should be forbidden to teach, their ability to have a passport should be revoked. These are so-called Christian people sharing this kind of thing. Now, are there some things in the Talmud that are anti-Christian? Now, remember, initially Christianity is just a—it's uh, another leg of Judaism, now we speak of Judaism really. In the first century, we should speak of Judaisms, because there was a Judaistic th- line of thought that would be represented by the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and and then there came this line through Jesus. and Jesus was giving the completion of the Old Testament promises. Once the temple is destroyed, the Sadducees, who largely oversaw that as priests, and so forth, they're out of business. They had nothing to do and so there became two lines of judaism christian judaism but they weren't called christians yet in fact the word christianity appears nowhere in the bible the word christian appears three times and initially it's not until acts 11 um, where the jewish people and the gentiles are first called christians why because the word christian is a form of the word Messiah. It's just a different language. Messiah comes into Greek as Christos. And so they were followers of the Messiah. Again, it's another stream of Judaism. The word Christian only appears three times in the whole New Testament. So really, Jewish people who embrace Jesus as Lord, they're completed Jews. They're Hebrew Christians and Messianic Christians. And so, yes, there are a couple things, but is the Talmud largely against Christianity? If that's what you're thinking, you've obviously never read it. In fact, there's only a couple places in all the Talmud, and it may be that these were driven by the uh, deeply implanted uh, anti-Semitism that had already crept in uh, by the time the Talmud is codified in the 5th century. Uh, they say, "Well, Mary was born of fornication. Well, that's not nothing that's nothing new. That's John chapter 8, what, verse 31, I think. Uh, he um, says, "We weren't born of fornication. We weren't born of pornea. You're here, Jesus, because your mother had an illegitimate relationship during the betrothal. That rumor that went back to Jesus's birth was still hanging on 30 years later. And then they said that Jesus in the Talmud, they make one other crack against him. He was, um, you know, basically a magician and he was empowered by omens. Well, listen, that's nothing new. That's Matthew chapter 12. Uh, In Matthew chapter 12, let me just turn over there for a second, just to remind you that, again, this is nothing new. But I'm going to finish your question here in just a second. In Matthew 12, Jesus had done a triple miracle, and no one could deny the miracle. Uh, the question is, how are we going to explain the miracle? Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? They're they're, they're wondering, you know, the son of David, that's a messianic title, like son of God and, and um uh, you know, one of the great messianic titles, son of man, son of God, son of David. The, is this the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. He's satanically empowered. We can't deny a miracle is done, but we're telling you that this miracle is not being done by Jesus and the Lord behind him. It's being done by the evil one, by Satan. That's a wicked thing to say. They were borderline committing an unforgivable sin blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because they'd rejected the witness of the Father and they rejected the witness of the Son. And there was only one witness that was left and he was operating right in their midst. And it was the witness of God, the Holy Spirit. And once they rejected him, there was no other ground to stand on. And so, yes, we don't hide anymore uh, the fact that When we preach the Bible, what was most of the persecution in the early church? Initially, it was Jews against Jews. We don't hide that. We don't hide the fact that Paul persecuted Jews. Who did Paul kill? He killed a Jewish brother by the name of Stephen. And so we don't hide that. We don't hide the fact that a Jewish people in Jesus' day, and again, this Pharisaism eventually became rabbinical uh, Judaism that we have to this day. Um, we don't hide the fact that they accuse Jesus of doing miracles by Jesus, but do we speak low of the Jews like John Calvin did, like Martin Luther did, like Augustine of hippo do? I hope you don't because God said he'll bless those who bless Israel and he'll curse those who don't. And so if you're one to tell, you know, anti-Semitic jokes and make fun of Jewish people, you're on really shaky ground. And if anything, you want to take the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, so you don't ignore the Jewish people. We have a responsibility to try to win them to Jesus. And so if God brings a Jewish person into your, into your line of vision and he opens the door to share Jesus, you should, because they need Jesus like anyone else. And so um, to, to portray the Talmud as a book that is largely anti-Christian— there's only two or three references in the entire Babylonian or or Jerusalem Talmud that you could even point to that, and what is said is nothing different from what you find in the New Testament. So you're creating a straw man. I always tell people, create an iron man, one that's true and factual, and then tear that down, but don't create a straw man, because you're misrepresenting these Jewish writings. Good question. I, it's a fair question. I'm glad you... You called and asked Dean. Let's go to the next one.
1: alright two five one eight five nine. if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. We have a live dictation, Pastor Carl, that comes in from Marie. She has a therapist uh, who is a Muslim, and they practice in her home and have to pray to Mecca multiple times a day. She would like to know if she should ask the agency for another therapist or should I honor them by allowing their religious freedom?
0: Well, I wouldn't, if if they are in your home. Correct. Uh, yeah, if if they're in your home, I, I wouldn't let any kind of false religion take place in my home. My home is a sacred place. I wouldn't allow anyone to come into my home and... You know, to fornicate in some bedroom because, you know, they're some relative. Like the question that came in last week, these two people who live together are planning to get married. Would, would I let them come to my home and sleep in the same bedroom as unmarried? Absolutely not. Would I let someone use alcohol in my home? Not Absolutely not. Um, would I allow someone to pray to Allah in my home? Not in my home. So, you know, if they want to do that, great, you can go out there in the street and put your rug out there, but you're not <laughs> going to do it in my home. And so, you know, you should, you should draw a line that if you really believe in these Christian values, the, these people may be sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. They're on their way to hell, just like any so-called Christian who are Christianized, but who are not born again are on their way to hell. And so, if uh, if they have problems with that, then I would get a new therapist. And I'm not sure why you have a therapist. I hope it's for a good reason. I uh, hope first and foremost this woman has looked to her local assembly into pastoral biblical counseling. Maybe they're doing that. But obviously, if you got a Muslim, uh, they're not. And may, maybe you're talking about physical therapy.
1: Uh, I think she might be referring to physical therapy, okay, Pastor Carl. So
0: physical therapy, right. yeah. So. Yeah, you know, again, nothing wrong with a Muslim coming to your home and if they're skilled at their trade and offering physical therapy. That's one thing. It's another thing when they're going to put their mat down and, you know, do their little gymnastics that are against what God says. You're allowing a false god to be honored in your home. I would never do that.
1: All right, our next question comes from Faye out of Georgia Uh, She writes, a friend's son was unchurched but is now going to a seeker-friendly church. Other people who have attended that church have left due to some issues. Where do you draw the line between not attending an unsound church and not attending church at all?
0: Well, it's a fair question. So we've mentioned already this morning uh, the largest church in Atlanta, which would dub itself seeker-sensitive, but it's uh, presenting a different jesus andy stanley is now preaching a different christ to quote al moeller the train has left the station and indeed he himself said on sunday from his pulpit that the christianity that al moeller believes is different from the christianity that he believes that says volumes that said it all in the introduction to his message listen al moeller is a godly bible believing historical Orthodox Christian, and to say that you don't embrace what Al Mohler has taught that represents historical Christianity basically says you're an apostate. So there are those kinds of seeker churches that are riddled with compromise, and you don't even want to attend those. There are some seeker churches that have the gospel, but typically they're unhealthy. They're unhealthy in that they are not because of the way they do church, so to speak, because of the way they do church, they're unhealthy because they're not preaching the word of God. And I would just say you'll probably end up doing more harm in that kind of a setting than you'll do good. Because when people do not have a clear, direct word from the Lord, it's actually a form of judgment. Where there is no vision, the people perish. That's what the scripture says. It's not what Rick Warren made it to be in his purpose-driven life. Literally, the Hebrew text says where there is no vision, that is where there is no revelation, where there is no word from God, the people perish. And so a secret church has basically a dated uh, existence if they don't repent and do what God calls every pastor to do, feed the flock, feed my sheep, preach the word. Because what happens is, is when that is ignored on the Lord's day, error eventually enters in and the church goes into apostasy. And so we've seen like 10 mega churches in the last 18 months totally turn away from historical Christianity. That's the fruit of a Bill Hybels and a Rick Warren and what they've done for the body of Christ. So find another church, and look, if it has 50 people in it, but the pastor is faithfully handling the word, go there. And if your son or this relative, this friend's son, is going there because he's comfortable, you know, he needs to become uncomfortable, and he needs to hear the gospel and be converted, because if he's converted, it's like a newborn baby a newborn baby has initially a natural hunger for milk. They're looking for that milk to feed on. And so we as believers are to do the same. Now, Peter deals with the issue when he says like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. He knew that some people's hearts had become distracted and they had to put away certain sinful things for that hunger to be reengaged. But initially, if, your friend's son meets the Lord, he won't be happy in some seeker church. He's going to want to hear scripture. And you start giving him even some websites. Bring him to search the scriptures. Ask him to listen, you know, to such and such a sermon, assuming he's converted. And if he's not converted and you question whether or not he's converted, then have him listen to, would you like to know God as your friend? And he'll see the difference. And he'll say, this is the kind of church I want and he'll shed that secret sensitive nonsense because that's all it is good question let's go to the next
1: uh, well actually pastor carl she just sent in another live dictation so this mm-hmm. is a continuation she right. would like to know if god answers the prayers of non-believers um and she would like to know your thoughts
0: yeah he can god certainly can and so sometimes as christians we have said well god doesn't hear the prayers of the lost well i will say clearly that the promises for prayer in scripture are primarily directed towards those who've met the living God. And so promise after promise, but some of the promises in reference to answered prayer, we dump on the unbeliever when we should be dumping them on our own lives as confessing followers of the Lord. Uh, the Psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Who is he speaking to in Psalm sixty-six eighteen? believers, believing jews who followed the living god he didn't say if i sin the lord will not hear but if i regard if i cherish if i cling to sin the lord will not hear and so there are the reference like isaiah it, there's an there is a separation between you and your god so that he does not hear those are again in reference to believers god not hearing the um, prayers of a believer Uh, But can God answer the prayer of an unbeliever? Well, obviously, when you call upon Jesus in faith, that's the first prayer he definitely promises to answer. But another individual that I'm thinking of here, I just turned to Acts 10. Now, there was a man of Caesarea named Cornelius, or Cornelius, either way, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. A cohort was a group of 600 men, so he's a Roman army officer from Israel and their garrison from Italy and their garrison there in Israel. He's a devout man, the text says, one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms, and alms was help to poor people. He gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So he's praying to the Lord. Is God hearing his prayer? Well, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God, who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And it's here, you know, sir, a term of respect. He's not calling him God. And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And so he gives him instruction, go get this man named Peter. I can tell you where he's going to find him. In the interim, Peter is having this vision on a roof to help him to understand uh, his relationship to reaching Gentiles for Christ. He brings the two together. He hears the good news. In Cornelius, it says in Acts ten forty four, while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised, the, the six Jewish friends that Peter brought with him, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because why the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. Also Peter then goes to the the Jerusalem church and he reports it and they're blown away. Not that a Gentile could be saved, but that a Gentile could be saved on the same level that a Jew could. And so the spirit of God who came on Pentecost on an all Jewish audience was now coming upon the first Gentiles. And so he reports and, he says, and he, Cornelius, uh, this is Acts eleven thirteen, reported to us how he had seen the angels standing in his house and saying, send a Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and your household. You will be saved? Yeah, because he wasn't saved yet. So God was hearing the prayer of a Cornelius. So I will say this. Here's some broad parameters. Sometimes an unbeliever is praying and God answers their prayer. Why? Because they're responding to the revelation they have, and God is showing them how real he is because he's drawing that individual to himself that they might believe and meet the living God. And it's often in that context, like with Cornelius, that God answers the prayer of an unbeliever. But does God generally answer the prayer of an unbeliever? No. Why? Because he doesn't have an intercessor. God can, but he doesn't generally. And so this caller, Faye, somewhere in Georgia, you should go to searchthescriptures.org if you don't already have the phone app, and you should go to the basic discipleship series and listen to my handout on prayer. You can actually download the note-taking handout, which is 33 pages long but you're going to learn a whole lot about what the Bible says about prayer. And I just gave you the short answer for the question you asked, but it's a good question. Let's go to the next.
1: alright four three five we We're going to go to the phone lines. Pastor Carl, I believe we have Alberto from Savannah. Good morning, Alberto. You are live with Pastor Carl. Go ahead with your question.
0: Yes, good morning. My question is, Jesus said that, that the, all that the Father gives him, he will lose any. So how come versus what a preacher says that God revealed to him that 70% of the church members will stay behind if Jesus will come that day because they're not living right? And that a contradiction because Jesus said he would lose any, all of the Father gave him? Well, the preacher is obviously wrong. Uh, Jesus said here, you're quoting from John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give. We don't earn it. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So he's affirming here the security of the believer that every single person without exception who looks to the Son and believes him will definitively, absolutely, without exception, be raised up on the last day, period. And so the Lord is clear. He said here in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. And so there, again, is a promise, and there's promise after promise, especially in the gospel of John concerning the eternal security of the believer. Now, with that said, and and I I might just, let me just read one other passage that, again, as you're speaking to your preacher, and I don't want to judge your preacher, most of the time when people tell me their preacher said such and such, most of the time they're misrepresenting their pastor, and they actually misunderstood what he was actually saying. So you want to make sure that you're not misunderstanding. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. There it is again. For in him the Father even God has set a seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And then a few verses later, he says in verse um, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has, this moment, eternal life. So if eternal life is something I can secure today, and it is because it's not simply heaven, it's included in the package, this is eternal life. Jesus will say in John 17, 3, that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. Now, if you're a pastor, meant that if Jesus came back, maybe 70%, and I don't know how anyone could put it, an exact figure on it, though I do know amongst those who confess Christ, Jesus said, the way is broad that leads to destruction and many are on it and that there's only a few that are on the narrow road that leads to life. And again, he is saying that in the context of people who say they are Christians. But with that said, if your pastor meant because there are so many people who think they're Christians and they're really not, they're only nominal Christians that a vast number will be left behind, then he would be correct. But if your pastor is saying some people are left behind because they don't live right, and to not be left behind, they need to live better, then he's teaching a works righteousness, he's teaching a false gospel, he's preaching a different Jesus. Now, if your pastor means that when someone is born again, their life changes and a byproduct is is that they live differently, then he would be correct. But if he says the solution to not being left behind is to get them the self-improvement plan and to follow the commandments more passionately, then he's teaching that works are a root of salvation and not the fruit of salvation. So I would say that if Jesus came back today based on Matthew 7 and other passages, that the vast majority of people who say they are Christians, nominal and even some who'd say they're born again, will be left behind because they've never met the living God. Uh, And in that sense, he would be right. But again, I see pastors all the time misrepresented, and and I don't want to misrepresent your pastor, and I certainly don't want you to do it, so you should... Get down to brass tacks with him and ask him to define some specific terms. And if he is teaching a works righteousness, you should leave the church because you're sitting under someone who doesn't have the gospel. Try to win them to Jesus, though, first. Let's go to the next question.
1: All right, we've got a, a little bit of time left, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Bob out of Okatee. He would simply like to know Is Esau in heaven or hell?
0: Well, um, I'm not Esau's judge. But it's interesting that when the writer to the Hebrews gives a summary of his life, he paints him like an unbeliever. And certainly the heritage that came from his loins were not viewed as born-again believers, so to speak, to use New Covenant theology, but indeed the kind of persons that were against Israel, against the living God, And so um, the Lord says, for instance, in Hebrews, I've just turned over to Hebrews 12, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And so, again, this goes back to the prior question. If we're born again, our life changes. Our life is set apart. And here he's using the present tense of sanctification to say that if we are born again, there's a new direction. We're not speaking about perfection. That won't happen until we receive glorified bodies. But there is a new direction our life takes. Without that new direction, without the sanctification, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And they're there thereby it many are defiled so he's giving a warning to Christians that not to allow anything to hinder this sanctification process then he says that there be no immoral or godless person like esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal for you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. So when God gives the summary of his life, it's not a good summary. It's godless, Babylon's, Esau. Not a good thing. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us. We could spend more time on it, but we are out of time. Thanks for joining us, and come tomorrow night to Community Bible Church, if you don't have a place to go, as we continue the series on the Christian in the Bible.
1: with us